Last week, Daniel Nealon preached a brilliant sermon again for me, did a fantastic job. And he told us about the first half of chapter 12 of this King Herod, Herod Agrippa and his campaign to erase Christianity off the face of the earth. To Herod, Christianity posed a threat, a threat to his kingdom and his rule as people were pledging their allegiance to a different kind of king, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one who was supposedly raised from the dead. And one of Herod's first acts of power in the beginning of chapter 12 is the execution, the martyrdom of Jesus' own brother, James. This feels like a power play to Herod. It probably seems to most, if you're reading this, it's Herod 1 and God 0. I don't know if you noticed, though, in this same passage, that while James was executed, Peter was delivered from prison miraculously. You probably, it would probably be an appropriate question to ask, why do you let James die and Peter escape prison by the power of these angels? How do we reconcile that, God? It seems like Herod got one point and you're trying to tie the score up. When in reality, as we'll see here this morning, this is actually God 2 and Herod 0. Because just as he had appointed Peter to life and for his ministry to continue, he had appointed James to death. And it was for a good purpose. Because God is an inscrutable God, even though we can't understand his ways, it does not mean he is not working for a good purpose. It's what makes him God. And so the people here are rejoicing and trusting in God's plan. They, they go to God in prayer And while they are going to God in prayer, Herod is becoming desperate. He's becoming very angry over the situation. He doesn't like things to be out of his control. He doesn't like the fact that he executed James and then Peter escaped his custody. So he has the guards killed. And then he goes down to this this area called Tyre and Sidon. These people that are in his debt that he provides food for, that are underneath his power and control. And he goes to essentially take his anger out on these people to even the score again. But as we soon see, that is not how things are going to end for Herod. So that's where we find him in these last five verses, angry and in search of a victory. And we'll see that what he finds is entirely different. There's, there's, I think there's a lot for us to learn here in this really strange passage about humility and pride and glory. So let me pray for us and we'll, we'll dig into it. Lord, I do thank you for these passages that teach me about my own selfish heart. The praise and the adulation... Uh, as a people pleaser that I love to live by. It gives me life to hear how great I am and how wonderful I am and the things that I've accomplished. To hear it from other people's lips uh, oftentimes becomes an idol for me as I live more for the pleasure of man than the pleasure of you. Lord, I know where that, that path leads because of what happens here. I know where stealing glory leads to. It leads to a deep corruption and ultimately to death. For anyone in this room, Lord, who is living for their own glory, their own worth, their own control and pride, Lord, I thank you that there is a cure, that there is a different way to live. Show us that way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So yesterday, I got a wonderful phone call. I was mowing my lawn, stopped to take a break and get a drink of water. My good friend, Adam Hodges, gave me a providential phone call and said, uh, I have two amazing tickets to the U2 concert. I was not planning on going. And uh, I said, okay, how much do I owe you? And he said, I want to give them to you for free. Wonderful, gracious gift. Thank you, Adam uh, and Allison. 
Uh, and so uh, that was a great excuse to take Natalie on a date night. We already had a dinner plan, and, and she indulged me. She's not a huge U2 fan, but you went, and we had fun. It was good. Um, we left a little bit early because Natalie's pregnant, and we're tired. But it was, it was still a blast, and I just love, I love, I'm a huge U2 fan. So gladly accepted the tickets. And U2, one of the things you'll, you'll notice about them, they love to push the envelope on the whole production of the, the technological side of their production. They want it to just blow you away. And we're driving over there, and Natalie's downloading this app. I'm like, what are you downloading? And she said, well, I heard about this app. It's like interactive while we're there. And it's pretty cool because you hold, there's like this massive rectangular screen. Who was at the U2 concert? A few of us. Tyler. Um, this huge rectangular screen. He's the youngest U2 fan out there. Um, <laughs> This huge rectangular screen taking up the whole uh, you know, floor of Bridgestone Arena, and you can hold your phone up, and there's something on the screen, but then when your phone's looking at the screen, you see something entirely different, like waterfalls and people and craziness, all these animated things. And it just, it's just kind of like, oh my gosh, how do they do that? And uh, they love to kind of push the envelope in their shows, and this year's tour is called Experience and Innocence. And the theme of the show is, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically like Bono telling the story of U2 through these like comic strips and stuff and talking about their journey over the decades and how they've changed and evolved and become who they are. And in the middle of the show, Bono talks about when they lost their supposed innocence um, and threw caution to the wind, indulging in pride and vanity at one certain point in their career. And this is before this famous song called Desire that you may have heard of about kind of the drug that desire and pleasure lead us to in our self-indulgence. And they, they went through this phase of deep self-indulgence. And then he did this really cool technological thing again, where he looks in the mirror on a stage, and then on the screen you see his face. And I guess you could, I'm, I'm not real good with social media. Like, can't you like put animal faces on your face, like through your phone or whatever? What's that called? Snapchat. Oh, Snapchat. So he kind of basically does his own Snapchat, and there's a devil on his face. And this, I found out this is like an old character from YouTube days past called McFisto or something like that, this character that he introduced back in like the 90s or something. Anyways, he's talking, and the, the whole point of it is, is essentially like there's a devil inside of him. There's a part of him that's the devil, a part of him that's the self-indulgent, prideful, glory hound uh, that he can be, and Bono loves to admit that even his own ego has been completely inflated over the years. And you can see, being in a concert like that, all these people rushing at the stage and wanting to grab Bono and singing and hanging on every lyric of every song and singing with him in loud unison, thousands of people. You can see how glory-inducing that would be. You can see how, as he receives basically the praise and worship of these people, how addictive and how corrupting that can be. How easily you might lose your innocence if you ever had it. Um, as they soak up the praise and adulation of the masses, it's intoxicating. And to me, that part of their set reminded me of how we crave glory. We're born into the world with a devil inside, so to speak. In a sense that it stands in opposition to a holy God. As Kevin DeYoung, one of my favorite Christian authors, he says, he says, we're all glory thieves. It's the sin of Adam and Eve. Satan convinced them that they deserved a little glory for themselves. It can't all be about God. It's got to be about you a little bit. And if it's not all about you, maybe just go halvesies with God. And in our story today, we have a glory thief of all glory thieves. Another tyrant who comes from a long line of tyrants who's been behind the scenes of the New Testament up to this point, wielding their power to eradicate Christianity, oppose God, and usher in their version of peace. 
King Herod Agrippa, he's the fourth of the Herods. You hear about these Herods all through Scripture. It's not the same Herod that was around when Jesus was around. This is the fourth Herod, and they're all a bunch of tyrants. Although he had made peace with the Jewish community um, for their own sake, this is a man who uh, is part of a line of people that killed babies and beheaded uh, John the Baptist and other Christian martyrs. And this Herod wants what's most elemental to all of creation to wield his power and get his way. He wants all the glory in the universe, that the universe was created by. The Scriptures tell us that in and by God's glory, the universe was created. It says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Because of this, all glory belongs to God. And the glory that Herod and the likes of Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander the Great and maybe even Bono, um, all the glory that they want is glory meant for the one true God, Yahweh Elohim. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, this is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or praise to idols. And again, today's passage shows us where glory thieves where, where a pursuit of stealing the glory of God, where it leads. It leads only to death. And God is quick to show us and the church, as he's building this church from its infancy, its New Testament infancy, as it's being kind of rebirthed and reborn into something entirely different. He's showing them, this is not about you and your glory. You're going to do amazing things. You're going to save people's lives. You're going to transform people's allegiances to new things. You're going to reorient them to grace and to love and to joy. You're going to take them from the depths of despair, from their own brokenness, into paths of healing. But it is not about you. Because the work that the church is taking part in is so powerful, so earth-shattering, so life-changing, the first temptation would be to think, look at me. Look at what I'm doing, just as Herod does. So I want to look at two points here, simple points. The danger of glorifying self and the reward of glorifying God. Okay, let's look at the danger of glorifying ourselves. Again, just to help set the scene here a little bit, uh, Herod is angry, as verse 20 tells us. Um, there's an older economic dispute between him and the people of these coastal cities. So the people who depend upon Herod for, for survival ask to meet with him, to beg him for mercy and deliverance so he doesn't destroy them. And they use this mutual friend named Blastus, easily the greatest name in all of Scripture. We're having a boy, and we settled on a name, but then I read this passage, and I'm like, that's the name of a boy right there. Excuse me, what's your name? I'm Blastus. <laughs> so Blastus here is setting up this massive meeting between Herod and these people in which Herod is going to sit upon his throne. And as this historian, this famous historian named Josephus, who in order to, this is kind of a, a good hint at the reliability of Scripture, non-Christian uh, non Jewish man named Josephus, historian, he writes about different events in the, in the, in during this time. And he writes about this, this specific event of what happens to Herod. So you get these extra biblical sources that are confirming this actually happened. It's not part of a fairy tale. This is historical literature. And Josephus writes about how Herod wore a robe to this meeting that's made entirely of silver. And he plans this meeting in the morning when the sun is rising at its height, beaming down on him as he's wearing a robe of complete silver. So you can imagine me decked out in silver, the, the, the sun shining through the window, 
it would be utterly blinding. But he was doing that on purpose because he wanted the people to be intimidated. He wanted the people to see that he had the glory of a God. He not only wanted it internally, he wanted it literally physically. It was such an idol for him that he wanted everyone to bow down to him. Josephus says that the people looked at on him in terror. He wanted again to show them after he had been experiencing these moments of being out of control, where God was in control and doing things he didn't like, as we all experience in this life, that life doesn't work as we thought it should, as, as our plans are made, our plans get frustrated. This whole life is full of frustration and toil, right? Bible makes sense of how life is broken and doesn't work, and Herod doesn't get it. And his, his solution to life not working as he should is to gain control back for himself to do everything in his might to make sure things work out for him. Now think about that in terms of your own life. You know, I think busyness and control has become the opiate of the masses in our, in our culture. I think if, if, if we can say, I'm busy, then we have the ultimate trump card for anything we want to get in life. If you can just say, I'm stressed out, I've got a lot going on, I'm tired. I've been working too much. No one can ask anything of you. You're essentially impenetrable. You get to pick and choose what you want to do, but if there's something you don't want to do, everyone just has to understand because we live in a busy culture. Who's going to argue against that? Of course you're busy. We're all busy. And in that busyness, we use it as an idol to gain control and I think even glory. Look how busy I am. Look how hard I work. Look how much I work. I work 65, well, I work 75 hours a week. Oh, well, you're, you're clearly more important and more successful than me because more is asked of you. And so in our, in our pursuit of this American dream, so to speak, which is really an American nightmare, we are, we are trying for the power grab. We're trying to receive the glory just as Herod did. So don't think, oh, crazy New Testament Bible king who wants all the glory and praise. I can't relate to that. You got your shiny silver robe you wear too. It just doesn't look the same. In which you want to reflect your glory to the masses so that you can sit on your throne in control of your own life. So God sees, I'm sorry, the people see him and in their terror, they say, literally say, the voice of a God and not a man. What if, what if Micah just busted out with that right now? The voice of God, not a man. Jay, you're such a great preacher. Oh, the glory. I want the glory. I want, to bathe, I want to bathe in it. And God sees Herod, the man king, in all his shine, and he immediately shows Herod and all the people in the kingdom who the true and active and living God is. Who deserves the glory? God sends an angel to strike Herod down. And what is easily the most vivid and horrific death in all of Scripture? And there's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 28 where uh, the king of Tyre, what, you know, he's in Tyre inside in here, the people of these two countries or nations, and um, there's a, a prophecy in the Old Testament where Ezekiel is called to tell the king of Tyre, listen, if you continue to live the way you're living and you try to be a god, you are going to receive the wrath of God. 
And Ezekiel 28, I mean, this is kind of eerily similar to what we see here going on, but it's written, you know, hundreds of years ago. And it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you the most ruthless of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. You will say, will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you. Though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of foreigners, for I have spoken declares the Lord God. This is a holy God. He will take no imposters. He will not share his glory with another. John Piper, he talks about, um, he, he likes to say he's a famous Christian pastor, writer, theologian. He likes to say that um, man's, uh, that, um, uh, oh, what is it, uh, to glorify God, to, to enjoy God, basically our highest end in life. He talks about Christian hedonism, this pursuit of, of pleasure as we're meant to have it, that the highest joy we can have is to glorify God, essentially. Um, the chief end of man, we would say, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's to live for another's glory more than our own. And we hear that in our own context, in our own culture, and it just sounds selfish, it sounds like God is just this kind of spoiled, selfish God that's all about Him. But if God is holy, if He is perfect, and He invites us in to experience His glory through living our lives not for ourselves, but for something higher than ourselves, beyond ourselves, for Him, then that is the best thing for us. This is, again, this is not superstition. This is not, listen, if you live like Herod and do bad, bad things are going to happen to you. But if you just suck it up and pull your bootstraps up and start making good decisions, good things will happen to you. No, it's, it's setting down the law of God. That if you live for your own selfish ambition, it will lead to death. It is a natural consequence. It is not, it's not even necessarily to punish you. It's just that you, it's not what you were meant for. It's not why you were created. You were created to know and be known by God, to love and be loved by God to have personal relationship with Him, yet we're born in sin. We're born with that devil inside, that opposition. How can we escape the way of pride? How can we escape the way of Herod? Herod, we see, dies this disgusting death. And Josephus comments on exactly how it happened. He says that his stomach began to shake, his body began to shake violently, began to clutch his stomach, and he fell over, and then they carried him out, and he died five days later. Well, as, we, as I said earlier, Herod was friends with the Jews. Josephus is a Jew. Some believe that he embellished the story so as not to look like God struck him down, but he died later. And we don't know if that's true or not. We know eventually he did die. And some believe that he died in this moment, that literal, literal intestinal worms were given to him that ate him from the inside out. That's about as bad of a death as I can imagine anyone dying. Um, 
Some scholars believe these are like 16-inch roundworms, or roundworms that can get as big as 16 inches that were literally eating him. That kind of detestable destruction seems, it seems laughable to us. But what kind of death are we willing to live with? What kind of detestable things are happening in your life that you're like, it's okay. I've learned to live with these things. Because I, want to, I still, I want to live for my glory, not God's. And you see the contrast here of how Herod handles things versus the Christians. What does Herod do when things go wrong and there's problems? He goes about arresting people and having them killed. He takes things into his own hands to save his butt and get the glory. He looks to his own strengths. What are the Christians doing? They're gathering together to pray to God. They look to God for strength, not to their own. That's the difference between the way of humility and the way of pride. You look at the contrast between Herod's way versus Peter's. While Herod experiences death, Peter's experiencing deliverance. But you know what Peter's going through? He's being humiliated, he's being put in prison, he's being beaten, and he's suffering. So it would be difficult to come to the conclusion in the health and wealth perspective that if you do what Peter does and you're faithful to God and you live for his glory, then you will get riches and wealth and material blessing. That's, that's not what it's about. What it's about is you will live for what you were meant to live for, which is what Peter is doing. And you even hear, see these examples of why Peter is experiencing the, the, the deliverance of God because he is literally living this out, this idea that it's about the glory of God. When he, um, in two chapters earlier, in chapter 10, when uh, Cornelius met him, he bowed down to Peter and started to worship him, he says. Peter wastes not a second. He doesn't indulge in it for a second. He makes Cornelius get up and he says, stop worshiping me. I'm not, I'm not a god. I'm just a man. Then you see in chapter 14, two chapters later, Paul and Barnabas show up in Lystra. They heal a crippled man and the people start shouting, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Peter and Barnabas don't want to have anything to do with that kind of talk. They rip their clothes and rebuke the crowd immediately. You think about Jacob and Potiphar's wife with this temptation to be indulged and to to experience self-indulgence. He immediately runs from the temptation. You think about Jesus in the wilderness he immediately runs for the temptation that Satan is giving him, the, the same temptation he gave to Adam and Eve. It's, it can be about you, Jesus. It can be about your power and your control. And he says, no, it's about the glory of the Father. Even Jesus himself recognizes that it's about the glory of the Father. I read this quote this week that says, at the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. I don't know about you. I would like a little bit of stake in the glory of God. I would like to be worshipped like a God at times in my life, especially when things aren't working out at home with Natalie and I or the family. I want to be respected and and. and obeyed like a God. I want my words to be so powerful and matter so much that no one has a choice but to do what I want so that life works out the way that I want it to. That's the kind of glory hound that I myself can be. I don't know about you. Some of us, again, we don't want it all, but at least a share of it. We seek staking claims over certain parts of our lives. These are the things that are all ours by our power and our might, at least we believe it to be so. Maybe it's your looks or your success or your reputation or your accomplishments or your talents, the things you are unwilling to part with because you believe they are making life work for you. 
You have to ask yourself, do people exist to make much of you or do you exist to make much of others? It's a good interrogative question. Do people exist to make much of you or do you exist to make much of others? Can you celebrate other people's successes? Or is that a real hang-up for you? Especially people in your industry. Are you a pointer or the point of life? What motivates you? What is your boast? People pleasers like myself live for our own glory at times. And it comes from others. It's not meant to. I think this is an extreme example for the church again of where selfish ambition leads. You know, as a parent, I think it's clear from the get-go that children think that life is all about them, right? Um, some people, as you see Herod here, I don't know how old he is, maybe he's in his 40s, he, he never learned this lesson. But part of the job of parenting is to teach your children that other people exist and that they matter. So like when you're in a grocery store and your kid throws a temper tantrum and starts scooting all over the floor, you want to lift them up and be like, there are actually other people here trying to do life. And it's, it's, it's crazy that you think, how do you, not, how do you not get this? Do you not see what's going on? But in their little minds, they can't understand it. And even in our big minds, some of us don't mature past that. We don't ever learn that lesson. In relationship to Jesus, that lesson is necessary. That life is not all about you because for, even for Jesus, it was not all about him. It was about him humiliating himself, stripping himself of glory to bring glory to the Father, that we might know the glory of the Father. Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good work, for in the season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So that's where this self-glorifying lifestyle leads. Let's see the reward of glorifying God to close. It's a lesson I'm learning more in my life now than ever. Glorifying God with my life and my thoughts and my commitments and my time and my energies and my appetites is worth it. There is reward given to those who put God first in their life and honor Him as such. You have to ask yourself, though, what is that reward? It's not stuff. It's eternal treasure. It's peace. It's assurance. It's joy to be able to live through the suffering of your own life. Here's the John Piper quote. God is most glorified when we're most satisfied in Him. The idea is that if I sow holiness through obedience, I will experience the favor and the joy of the Father. I will live in His glory. The psalmist writes, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there is pleasure forevermore. I think when we commit to obedience to God's law and His ways, loving what He loves and hating what He hates, valuing what He values, we will experience the joy that we were made for. The problem is that we're born in sin, on the wrong path, on the way of pride. We're all destined to steal glory for ourselves and experience death like Herod here, but it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus tells us in John 16, that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus, through His perfect obedience, overcomes the world to free us to live in the way of humility, glorifying God with our obedience. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you don't have that opportunity. You don't have the opportunity to live what you were meant to live for so that 
you can be raised from your own depression, your own anxiety, your own sadness into the eternal joy of the Father so that when you experience those things in life, you can have hope. That's the hope of the gospel. And for the church here in Acts, their obedience to the call of God on their lives may mean that they lose their lives and they don't receive any kind of earthly reward, money or power or reputation, but they can rest assured that they're not giving their lives for nothing. He tells us in verse 24, all this is happening, but the word of God multiplied and increased. You know, that's what Carter last Sunday when we particularized, he was standing right there and he was giving us kind of a charge and he was saying, you have to hold the word where it deserves to be. It has to be primary to everything we do as a church. It can't be about programs. It can't be about uh, whatever our mission or our vision is. It has to be first and foremost about the Word of God. That has to drive everything that we do. We have to hold that as the authority here at Flat Rock, that this is what we're meant to live by. This tells us how to live. This makes sense of our lives, and it's not a rule book to follow. It's a story of love and redemption of a God who sacrificed everything so that we could live for His glory. I'll close with this. You know, after that McFisto piece in the show last night, there's this part where they start showing white supremacist hate groups in this really disturbing kind of like scene in the concert. Um, they're marching, they're pointing their middle fingers, it's like closing in, the camera's like closing up on their, uh, closing in on their middle fingers. And while those images are being shown, U2 sings one of my favorite songs, In the Name of Love. It's a powerful picture of what can heal the worst of sinners and bring peace to the angriest and most evil of things. And the joy that I take in it is that it does not matter what I bring into this room. It can be healed. It can be restored. It can be reconciled, but only through the God of Christianity. Do you know why? Because he does it for you. Every other religion is telling you, you have to do it yourself. Here's the recipe. Go and reconcile yourself to God. And Christianity is saying, no, you can't do that in your own power. Jesus has to come and do it for you. And Bono sings these lyrics. I'd sing it if I could sing. I wish Micah could just come up here and wail on it. Um, Would you let me lead you even when you're blind, even in the darkness, in the middle of the night, in the silence, when there's no one by your side, when you call in the name of love, when there's madness and poison in your head, when the sadness leaves you broken in your bed, I will hold you in the depths of your despair, and it's all in the name of love. Well, that name of love is Jesus. And Herod didn't have a chance to answer those questions with a yes. But we do, and you do this morning. Whether you ever, ever have or not, you have a chance to say yes to Jesus. You don't have to wait. You have time today to surrender your hearts, your hard hearts, even those who are walking with Jesus. There's always a chance for renewal and reorientation, to surrender your hard heart so that you, don't, you stop experiencing the death of your own slavery and live in the freedom of Christ. Let's pray.